Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Great to see all of you uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here at Candeo. And if you stay uh, here long enough, you'll probably notice that those of us who uh, regularly get up here and preach, we will tend to kind of default to a pretty predictable set of kinds of illustrations, um, kinds of references, things like that. So for example, uh, Stephen will tend to talk about his family or about sports. Uh, you salt students probably know that more, you know, better than anyone, like insulting the cheerleaders, saying that cheerleading is not a sport. I feel your pain. Uh, for, for Cody, it will generally be um, like a farming reference or family or just crying in general. Like... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, we give him so much garbage for that. It, it, I think he, it's hard to tell. He has allergies, I know that, but it's, it's, it's not obvious when it's allergies and when it's crying. Um, for me, it'll tend to be uh, coffee, Chicago, my family, some sort of random book reference or something like that. But one thing that I've, I've never referenced before uh, that I think this might be an appropriate time to let you all in on is that I'm actually a retired actor. Ooh. Now, before you get too impressed, it was my sophomore year of high school, and the one and only play I was ever in, uh, Illinois Pete, I was no longer Jake Herring, but I was uh, Elmer who was henchman to Phineas T. Fobbs, and along with my fellow henchman, Gus, who was also my friend, Luke Roscoff, uh, we helped Phineas uh, get a, a hidden treasure that was hidden in a 100-year-old estate that happened to be occupied by an all-girls school. And we did get the treasure at the end. Now, um, I would not say that I'm a fine arts aficionado. Like I said, it was the one and only play that I've ever been in. But what I got to see in that experience, and if you've ever been in a play, you know this to be, you don't even have to have been in a play to know this to be true. But what I got to see firsthand was that what was happening on stage was very much a reflection of what was happening backstage. You know what I'm saying? Like what was happening on stage, like the scene that was happening on stage, backstage, like, while that was happening backstage, there are lights, there are props, there's costumes, there's makeup, there's, like, stage pieces for set changes, all these kinds of things. All of those things that are happening backstage, that the only way the things that could happen up there was because of what was happening back there. And what we have in Daniel chapter 10, as we are getting close to the end of the book of Daniel, what we have in Daniel 10 is actually one of the... I think one of the greatest examples in all the Bible, for sure in the Old Testament, of God pulling back the curtain for us to get a glimpse of what is really happening behind the scenes of our world. Like if you've, found, if you've ever found yourself going, looking at the world, reading the news, just seeing the things that are happening, and you find yourself going, what in the world is going on? What we're going to see from Daniel chapter 10 is that there's actually more than meets the eye. There's more than meets the eye. So Daniel 10... Let's read the whole thing here. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. 
The message was true and was about a great conflict. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any rich food. No meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face was like the brilliance of, of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew pale, and I was powerless. I heard the words, he said. When I heard them, I fell, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I am saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. After he, said, after he said this to me, I stood trembling. Don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me, for from the first day you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days, for the vision refers to those days. While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and was speechless. Suddenly, one with human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, because of the vision, anguish overwhelms me and I, and I am powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now I have no strength and there is no breath in me. Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, Don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you. Be very strong. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. When I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. No one has the, no one has the courage to support me against those princes except Michael, your prince. And then verse one of chapter 11, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen and protect him. So now, Daniel 10 is actually the beginning of the last vision, the last section of the book of Daniel. We've been in Daniel for the last nine weeks. This will be the 10th week. And next week, we will finish the whole book with chapters 11 and 12. And what this is, is it's kind of like the preamble to the final vision. And right here in the first section, we see something really interesting. If you look at the very beginning of chapter 10, it says, in the third year of King Cyrus... Of Persia. And the reason that this is interesting is because we know from Ezra chapter 1 that King Cyrus of Persia, in his first year, he issued a proclamation that the exiled Jews could return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple in their city. So if you remember, when we began Daniel, uh, Daniel is taken from his home city into exile in Babylon. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, he says that they can go back. But this is the third year. And so Daniel, two years after his people had returned home to rebuild the temple, he's still in Babylon. 
And we know from Ezra chapter 1 that over the course of those two years, that once those exiled Jews, those who had returned to Jerusalem, they began to rebuild the temple, but they were met with incredible opposition, and the rebuilding of the temple had stopped. And so therefore, the place where the worship of God could happen in the city of the people of God, that worship had stopped because the building of the temple had stopped. And so here is Daniel two years later, knowing all of this, knowing that this temple rebuilding project had ceased and therefore the worship of God was no longer taking place in the city of the people of God. He is mourning and he is fasting. By this point, while in Daniel chapter one, Daniel was a young man taken into exile. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is an old guy. He's an old man. And so maybe the reason why he didn't return to Babylon with his exiled, uh, with his fellow exiled Jews, maybe one of the reasons was, was because by this time Daniel had tremendous responsibility in Babylon. But it's very possible. I mean, think about this. It's very possible that Daniel, being so old, is looking at this going, even if I could survive the journey back, what use will I be in the rebuilding efforts? I'm an old man. Now, we don't know exactly why Daniel didn't return, but we know, we know by now, having walked with Daniel through this book, we know by now that whatever the reason was for Daniel staying, we know that he must have had a deep conviction from the Lord that he was to remain in Babylon. And notice this, that while Daniel stayed in Babylon, he was still working. While Daniel stayed in Babylon, and while the temple in Jerusalem stood at a standstill, Daniel prayed and fasted on behalf of his people. I don't miss this. Don't miss what's going on here. Daniel was not physically present and likely was not physically able to help his people rebuild the temple and resume worship. But Daniel knew that what his people needed most, that even though he wasn't able to be there and even if he was, he probably wasn't able to help, Daniel knew that what his people needed most was very similar to what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, what these leaders needed most was someone who would engage in the hidden but strategic work of prayer for the defense and advance of the kingdom of God. So right off the bat, right, right from verse 1 in chapter 10, we're confronted with a question, an assessment. And it's this. Do you think that you are too powerless to be of any use in the kingdom of God? Do you think that you are too incapable? Do you think that you are too, too far off? Like, like what God is doing around the world, I'm here. How, what am I supposed to do? How can I help that? Do you think that you're too old? Do you think that you're too old or too weak to be of any use for the kingdom of God? What we see here in the first few verses of Daniel chapter 10 is that no matter how old, no matter how incapable, no matter how weak you are, you are not too old to pray. You aren't too weak to pray. You aren't too far off to pray. Could it be? I think, I think Scripture 
would confirm this to be true, that could it be that the greatest warriors for the kingdom of God, the greatest warriors are those who in their weakness, in their inability, in their old age, kneel on the front lines, wielding the most powerful weapon that the kingdom of God has, the powerful weapon of prayer on behalf of God's people for God's glory among the nations. Can I just say something as one of your pastors, and especially to those of you who are older. I'll let you define what older means. But especially to those of you who are older, do not ever underestimate your place in a next-generation church like Candeo. Don't ever underestimate your place. Don't ever underestimate your value in a next-generation church like Candeo because though you may not be the ones to stay up until all, all hours of the night at a salt retreat, you can be the ones to stay up until all hours of the night in fervent prayer that God would work and move in the lives of children and teenagers and college students, that you would do the serious kingdom work of prayer, asking God to transform their lives. No matter how incapable, no matter how weak, no matter how old you are, if you're still alive, you still have a role in the kingdom of God. What more important? Thing could you do? What more powerful thing could you do? What more serious work could you do than be a godly man or a godly woman who prays on behalf of God's people, who intercedes on behalf of our church? Because here's the thing, God has sovereignly ordained that his work in our world would be moved along by the, by the prayers of his people. So I praise God for every older believer that we have here at Candeo. We seek to be a multi-generational church with a next-generation focus. I, I recognize that it can be very, very easy that if you are older in age, that you can go, what place is there for me? I mean, we're all about, you know, children and teens and college students. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? But it is not lost on me. It's not lost on our elders. That when Satan looks at our church, that some of the most dangerous people in our church, some of the most dangerous people in the eyes of the powers of darkness are people like Pat and Ralph Larson, are people like Gloria Gehring. Uh, Pat and Ralph, you're actually sitting in Gloria's spot. She'll be here next service. So thanks for warming it up for her. But Gloria sits right over here unassuming, joyful older woman who lost her sweet husband a few months ago and just a week after that is back in her seat praising the Lord, praying on behalf of you. Gloria, Pat, Ralph, Mindy Scallon. I don't know where you're at, Mindy. Stephen Debbie Ferguson. Kirk and Joan Nye. I'm not going to go through all of you older people. <laughs> but you are perhaps some of the most dangerous people at Candale. At least in Satan's eyes. 
because you are the ones who, though you're not staying up till three in the morning with college students, you are the ones who are constantly on your knees praying on behalf of our church. Never underestimate your spot at a next generation church like Candeo as you do the serious kingdom work of prayer. Be a praying people. Now notice something else. Last week, we, chapter nine, uh, Daniel wasn't even finished praying his prayer. Maybe you'll remember that. Daniel is in the middle of praying and God shows up and begins talking. Notice there was no like amen in Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter nine, right? Because he got interrupted because God answered right away. But now here in chapter 10, it's almost the exact opposite. Here in chapter 10, it takes three weeks for Daniel to get an answer. You see that in verse two. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. And then verse 12, don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me, for from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. So what's going on? Why? Was there like, was there roundabout construction between heaven and earth? You know, like Gabriel, who I think is the angel speaking here to like, and Gabriel got, he's sitting on Green Hill at those dopey stop signs, right? Just slowly dying. You're like, why? Where do you live in Cedar Falls? Why is there this? We should never have traffic in Cedar Falls. Is that, what, is that what's happening? Was there construction? Why did it take three weeks? What took so long? Look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Notice this. It took so long because behind the scenes of what is happening on earth, Behind the scenes, there is a cosmic spiritual battle that's taking place that informs and affects what is happening on earth. Gabriel was sent the first day. Daniel started praying and it took three weeks because while Daniel waited and prayed and mourned and fasted, there was a cosmic spiritual battle taking place. These princes here in Daniel 10 are, are angels, and it would appear that some of them are like territorial angels, right? You see the, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, we see later on in chapter 20. The prince of the kingdom of Persia would be like a, an evil spirit or a demon that kind of oversees that region. And Michael, who's one of the chief princes, one of the chief angels, came to help me, which we can assume is Gabriel. Michael and Gabriel are, are kind of the only like named angels in the scriptures. And what prevented Gabriel from reaching Daniel immediately, but instead kept him from coming for three weeks, was that there was an epic battle between good and evil that was taking place that Daniel couldn't see. And so while Daniel sat on the main stage, while he sat on, while he sat here on earth, like for all the things that you could see, what was happening backstage was an entirely different story. That while Daniel waited for God to respond, there's an epic spiritual battle. And so it would have been very easy, and it's probably very easy for you, as you pray, as you plead, as you ask for God to do something, and it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. It's very easy, and it would have been very easy for Daniel, I can imagine, to imagine that God was being really, really slow, 
or that God was being really, really silent, or that your prayer was actually doing nothing. Have you ever felt that way? I feel that way all the time. Where you pray, you're like, I, I know I should pray. Sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's doing anything. See from Daniel 10 that your prayers do something. Even when you can't see what they're doing. Your prayers are doing something. That spiritual beings, good and evil, directing the happenings of entire regions. They're at war with one another. They're being moved along in response to the prayers of God's people. That's verse 12. I have come because of your prayers. God has sovereignly ordained that the way that he moves in the world is moved along by the prayers of his people. Your prayers do something. Now, today, we have a problem with the idea that there are spiritual forces in our world. Us, us modern Westerners have a problem with that. We don't believe that to be true because us modern Westerners tend to believe that everything that happens in our world has a natural or a scientific explanation to it. That all things that are wrong in our world, like crime and poverty and racism and war and violence, that all those things, that if we just look at them really closely and we think about them, that their existence can be explained in purely naturalistic terms. And here's what we do. We, we, like to, we like to kind of categorize and explain away the reason for evil in our world. And we do it in a variety of ways. These aren't the only ways, but these are some of the ways we do it. We, we look at the things that are wrong in our world. And us modern Westerners, we're very sophisticated. We go, well, the reason for the wrong in our world is because, like, like, because of psychological reasons, right? Like people do bad things because, well, they weren't loved enough as a kid. They weren't hugged enough. They weren't nurtured enough. They weren't affirmed enough. And so that's the reason things are the way they are. That's, that's the reason people are the way that they are is because there's a psychological thing going on. Or, we're, or we step back and we go, maybe, maybe it's not just like, maybe it's like sociological. Maybe it's not only their home, but it's their entire environment, their culture. It's the culture they grew up in. Bad things or people exist because their culture wasn't sophisticated enough or educated enough. Maybe it's a political reason. We just came out of the midterm elections, right? And we go, man, if only that political party would be in power, or if only this political party would be in power, then we could make progress in the world and things that are bad wouldn't be so bad. We just lack the political resources or we lack the educational resources. Like, oh, it's just, it's, it's because of a lack of education that things are so bad in our world. And we, if we just inform people, if we give them a good enough education, then our world will continue to become a better and better place. But if that's all there is to it, if that's, if those are kind of like the only ways you can explain evil in our world, then you're going to have an incredible amount of difficulty accounting for much of the evil that exists in our world today. I mean, take World War II, for example. The atrocities of World War II, the atrocities of the Holocaust, ironically came out of what was at the time the most sophisticated, the most educated society, the most ordered society that existed on earth. So how? How do you explain the evil of World War II and the Holocaust when it seemed as though all of those resources 
were existent and flourishing. How do you explain that? We have an incredibly difficult time. If you only have a naturalistic, if you only have a materialistic or a humanistic understanding of the world, you're gonna have a really, really hard time accounting for the evil that exists in our world. But here's the thing, the Bible doesn't have a difficult time. Because what we have here in Daniel chapter 10 isn't just the picture of that the world is broken. We can all see that fairly easily. But it gives us a picture of why our world is broken. And the reason that the Bible gives for the dysfunction that exists in our world, the evil that exists in our world, is that it is the result of a cosmic spiritual battle that's taking place behind the scenes that manifests itself in a million different ways in the conduct of humans. Now, I need to put one asterisk here because what I'm not saying is I'm not saying that the reason that people do evil things is simply because the devil made them do it. The reason that you do evil things is, well, the, Jake, oh, cosmic spiritual battle. The devil made me do it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if you look at the things happening in our world and you fail to recognize that there's also incredibly powerful spiritual forces at play, then you are viewing the world two-dimensionally. You are failing to recognize a massive piece of the puzzle of what's happening in our world. Now, if the idea of a spiritual realm or spiritual forces or angels and demons, if that's really difficult for you to accept, can I just offer a couple, a couple things to maybe make you reconsider? Or maybe if you don't have a problem with that, you certainly know someone who has a problem with believing in a spiritual world. I, I, I took these from uh, Tim Keller's exposition of Ephesians 6. This was really helpful. A few things to hopefully throw a rock in your shoe or maybe the shoe of some of your friends and uh, skeptical family members. So first, if you struggle with the idea that there is a spiritual reality behind the scenes of what you can see, could you at least consider, could you be open-minded enough to at least consider the possibility that it is you who are being reductionistic? that it's you who are being simplistic. We educated Westerners like to be scientific, we like to be sophisticated, but could it be that refusing to see the multidimensionality of our world and the evil in it, that refusing to acknowledge that reality, that it's actually you who are being overly simplistic in your understanding of the world? And actually not those crazy people who believe in spirits and angels and demons. Maybe it's you who's being too simplistic. Or maybe, if you have a hard time believing in a spiritual dimension, could you be open to the consideration that you're possibly being culturally narrow? Say, whoa, what do you mean by that? What I mean is that the spiritual world is really difficult for us Westerners to consider, but that's not the case universally. Places like Latin America, places like Asia, places like Africa, they have very little trouble believing in spirits and in demons in the spiritual world. They don't have nearly the trouble we have believing in those things. And so they have wisdom too, don't they? Like at least consider listening to people from other cultures around the world and what they have to say about what's informing what's happening in our world. Like, 
Don't be so culturally narrow that you would look down your Western nose at them and pat them on the head for being unsophisticated and say, oh, well, maybe once you become more enlightened, then maybe you'll stop believing in spirits and demons and angels and all those things. Isn't that, isn't that being a bit culturally superioristic? And finally, if you struggle with the idea of the spiritual realm, well, one thing I would just ask is, is, do you believe in God? Now, some people would say no. Many people would say yes. And so I just say, well, if you, if you believe in God, who is spirit, then wouldn't it be inconsistent to believe in God but not believe in a spiritual, a broader spiritual reality? Because you see, what Daniel 10 is showing us is that the events in human history are inextricably intertwined with events in heavenly places. Now, what we'll tend to do, what we very often tend to do, is we will tend to fall into one of two ditches. And it's very likely that you probably fall into one of these ditches. And I, I bet I could guess which one most of us fall into. You'll either fail to recognize that there are spiritual forces at play at all, and you'll like under-spiritualize our world. You'll see things two-dimensionally, like the only things that exist are the things that we can see. You'll under-spiritualize it, or you'll give Satan way too much credit. And then and you'll tend to over-spiritualize everything. Like there's a demon behind every bush. There's an angel, you know. Everything is the result of demons and angels. And you'll get so overwhelmed with it. You'll get so infatuated with the spirit. You'll over-spiritualize everything that happens everywhere. But if I had to guess, if I had to guess, kind of where most of us are at, where our default setting is and the way that we actually live our lives is my guess is that most of us, maybe not all of us, but my guess is that most of us actually live our lives totally unaware of the spiritual realities taking place behind the scenes. That many of us actually practically live an under-spiritualized reality. But notice that the remedy for living an under-spiritualized reality is not to swing the pendulum all the way over to the other side and begin to become infatuated and obsessed with angels and demons. Like, that's not the answer. You know, you go, man, you're right. I live my life totally unaware. I don't even think about it. I just think my issue is with that coworker at work, and I'm not even thinking about the spiritual realities that are taking place and the conflicts that I have in my life and the conflicts that are happening in the world. The answer, then, is not to begin to over-spiritualize Everything. No, notice when Daniel saw behind the scenes, when he saw behind the curtain, he was totally overwhelmed. That's 15 through 17. And then notice what this heavenly being says to him. He doesn't say, now, Daniel, that you've seen behind the scenes, you become aware of this reality, be totally spooked and obsessed about everything that's happening and occupy yourself with fighting the spirits. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Verse 19. Do not be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you. Be very strong. Daniel's seen behind the curtain. He's seen the powers. He's seen the, sport, the, the, the forces. He's seen the spiritual realm of good and evil that informs everything that's happening on earth. And he's undone by it 
because it's incredibly serious. This is, this is, what, this is what Paul in, a, in Ephesians chapter six, this is the famous chapter on, uh, on spiritual battles, uh, spiritual warfare, wearing the full armor of God. Notice what Paul says. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, flesh and, blood but against, and notice the words that he uses, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness and evil spiritual force. He uses incredibly strong language to describe the spiritual realm. Incredibly strong language. He takes the powers of darkness very seriously, but not so seriously that all hope is lost. Because notice that neither Paul in Ephesians 6 nor the one speaking to Daniel here in Daniel chapter 10, neither of them tell Daniel it's a powerful, scary world behind the curtain, therefore crumble in fear. They don't say that to him, and they don't say, it's a powerful, scary world behind the curtain, therefore become a demon slayer. Claim the promises of God, go out, fight in battle, become a demon slayer. Become infatuated and obsessed with the spiritual forces. No, they don't say that either. No, the angel eases Daniel's fear by reminding him, by first reminding him who he is. You see, in the face of difficulty, in the face of darkness, in the face of struggles in this life, one of the first things that tends to happen is that you totally forget who you are. But notice, it says, do not be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you. Be very strong. So how do you as a Christian... In 2022, stand strong in the midst of spiritual battle. How do you do that? I have two minutes to give you four things. It'll be very quickly. How do you as a Christian stand strong in 2022 in the midst of spiritual battle? First, remember what is true. Remember what is true. And what is true is that there is a spiritual battle raging behind the scenes of the events of our world. That is what is true. Do not be unaware of the spiritual battle that is taking place behind the scenes. How much more dangerous is an enemy if that enemy can convince you that they don't exist? How much more vulnerable to attack are you if you don't actually recognize that you are under attack, that you are actually in a battle? Remember what is true. There is a spiritual battle taking place in it, and you, like it or not, cannot avoid it. The fact that you are alive right now today means that you are in the battle. Whether you believe that or not, you are. So remember what is true. Number two, remember who you are. Just like this angel reminded Daniel who he was, remember who you are, Christian. You are treasured by God. You are treasured by God. There's a kind of um, of worthless Christian theology that we need to eradicate from our minds. See, here, here's kind of the logical process that can tend to happen. And maybe, maybe you think this overtly, maybe you just have kind of assumed this, that, that because of sin, because of our, our brokenness, our fallenness, our enmity towards God, that, that because we are lost in our sin, that, th- that, that means somehow we are worthless. But just because something is lost does not mean that it's worthless. In fact, the worth of a lost object 
is determined by the extent to which one will go to find that which is lost. Do you get what I'm saying here? Just because you were lost in your sin does not mean that you were ever worthless to God. Because what great extent did God go to find you? What cost did he pay to find you? He spared no expense. He went to the greatest length. Remember who you are, Christian. You are treasured by God. So remember what is true. Remember who you are. And then thirdly, remember what you have. Ephesians 6, verse 13 through 18, this is the, this is the full armor of God. But notice that as you read through that passage, this isn't armor that you have to buy. This isn't armor that you have to find. But instead, this is armor that is given to you that you are then called to put on. That as believers, the way that we live in 2022, in the midst of the spiritual battle that is taking place, we are given the resources that we're to be dressed from head to toe in truth. That we're to be dressed from head to toe in righteousness. That we are to be ready to share the gospel. That we are to be dressed head to toe in faith. That we have the joy of our salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Because in Christ, these are the spiritual resources that are sitting right at our feet. To put on as those engaged in a spiritual battle. So remember what is true. Remember who you are. Remember what you have. And finally, though, Remember how you have it. What you have is the full armor of God. But how can you have that armor? Notice this. Remember that the armor that you have been given has actually been worn before. The spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter 6 is, has actually already been used you and I, Christian, only ever wear used armor. Why? It's because when Jesus Christ saw that there was no one able to, del to deliver his people from sin and darkness, he wore the belt of truth. When Jesus Christ, that there was no one else able to deliver you from the, from the powers of darkness, he wore the breastplate of his own righteousness. He brought the gospel of peace. He carried the shield of faith. He wore the helmet of salvation. He wielded the sword of the spirit to fight the greatest spiritual battle the forces of darkness have ever seen. And having overcome those rulers, having overcome those forces and cosmic powers, he now hands us his armor. So how do you stand firm as a Christian in, in the spiritual battles that are taking place right now in 2022? Remember what is true. Remember who you are. Remember what you have and remember how you have it. You see, the only reason we can stand firm and wear this armor is because Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he stood firm. And not only did he stand firm, but he also stands with you now as you stand firm, as we resist the devil in this evil age. So this morning, Candeo, you who are treasured by God, you are not alone. And God has given you everything that you need to stand firm. So stand firm. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, would you help us to not be unaware of the battles taking place behind the scenes. Lord, not that we would be a superstitious people, but that we would be a faithful people who believes what you say. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is against a spiritual reality that will only be won through spiritual resources. And Jesus, oh, we thank you for being the forerunner of our faith, for fighting the battle on our behalf and now handing us your armor and filling us with your spirit so that we would stand firm, so that we would faithfully fight with gentleness and joy. Help us to represent you well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.